Which is to say that this uh, Daily Mail headline is probably incorrect. Yeah. Hello and welcome again to the Mendel's Finch Podcast. I'm still Matt. And I'm still Lawrence. And we're joined today by a researcher from the UCL who's working on human population genetics. Lucy, hello. Hi. So tell us a bit about what you're working on. Okay, so I'm in the final year of my PhD now. Um, and the kind of the, the big goal of my PhD is really to understand factors that are driving genetic diversity in human populations. So that involves factors such as historical factors, um, factors to do with anthropology, and also social factors. So I try and look at those using DNA. Which kind of populations is that? Everywhere, or is that Africa? Or Yeah, so I'm actually quite lucky in that UCL has, has a lot of data. So there's a lot of populations I can work with. Up until now, I've really been looking at African populations, because... Um, as, as I hope you know, you know, we're all African, so it's a good place to start in terms of characterising global genetic diversity, is to look at specific African groups. So that's involved me looking at groups um, in the Congo and also in Ethiopia, as well as other populations kind of in a, in a less focused way. As I understand it, you, inside Africa, mm-hmm. there's a, a surprising amount of diversity, essentially, and you'll find that the all the populations that have come from Africa are essentially, is it one or two strands of migrations? Is that right? Yes and no. So the, this is sort of asking the question of, of out of Africa. And I think this is, a, this is a difficult question to answer. So as we understand it currently, the genetic diversity in Africa is, is huge. It's much larger than in any other area in the world. And if you start to look at that diversity as you move out of Africa into other populations, you find that it decreases almost linearly with sort of geographic distance. So what this tells us is that the first humans that have contributed um, DNA to modern populations, at least, were likely in Africa. Um, that doesn't mean that there weren't populations which moved out of Africa and, and just haven't contributed DNA to modern populations today. But what we find, generally speaking, is there's quite a consensus view that the modern human form arose in Africa and it was a small group of individuals. There's a very strong, um, what we call a bottleneck effect, so a reduction in genetic diversity as you leave the continent. And there is a lot of um, controversy about how many waves of people that was, which route was taken, when it happened. And these are all questions which many people are seeking to answer, um, but are very challenging because you're dealing with with things that happened a a very long time ago. Could you just describe a couple of those instances, some examples of how people think the routes were taken? I mean, routes specifically, there's um, this idea of a northern or, or southern route. So the northern route is kind of out um, into the Levant, and then the southern route is is thought to have occurred sort of out through Ethiopia, across the Babel Strait, and um, kind of following a line along the coast into India and populating the rest of the world. And there's some evidence that populations went one way or another, um, both um, from fossil and archaeological evidence and from DNA. Um, But it's extremely challenging to kind of reconstruct these movements. And so we do see um, the legacy of of people moving at the time periods that we we think um, correspond to when people would have first left Africa. But it's very difficult to kind of pinpoint which route was actually taken. And as I understand it, most of the information contributes to our understanding of this is is from current individuals today, right? The diversity of humans as it is today, rather than uh, skeletons. And ancient DNA from the past. So certainly in terms of um, genetic analyses, you're, you're dealing with pretty much modern day populations. We do have some DNA from individuals further back in time, but not really at the timescales consistent with sort of out of Africa events. That mean, but at the same time, there's also a huge amount of um, archaeological, anthropological evidence. Um, we're quite limited in terms of fossils of, of human remains and, and watching the kind of anatomically modern form evolve through the fossil record. 
so it's it's quite difficult to make these kind of very large inferences based on few samples um, but what we do know currently is that the first um, or the oldest anatomically modern humans um, re human remains have been found in Ethiopia which is consistent with this African origin um, there's some evidence from genetics that says that this modern human form didn't really arise in Ethiopia and perhaps it arose more in the south of the continent so perhaps in southern African in Africa um, so some people have linked this to the Khoisan Bushmen who they um, speak a, a click speaking language which many linguists believe is one of the oldest forms of, of human language so you say more southern but yeah so down sort of ba in the base of sub-saharan africa um but there's also been some fossil remains found in northern africa which are also quite old so as you can see it's, it's hugely complex and dna is a really good way of starting to try and answer these questions you know the fossil record is really bitty so you can maybe use dna to sort of interpolate between these areas and and actually you start to pick apart what's gone on but there's a number of reasons why, why that's very challenging to do um so kind of one really important factor is that we've all mixed a huge amount. Um, there's been several papers that have shown that um, admixture, so the mixing of, of different populations or genetically different populations between each other is really pervasive. It, it happens everywhere and it's really um, a very significant phenomenon worldwide. But of course, when you're then starting to try and reconstruct very ancient events, you find that those populations have mixed such a huge amount, it starts to, to muddy the signals a lot when you're trying to look further back in time so when you, so what kind of um so how's the data that you get look when you're talking about so you look at the dna i mean are you talking about having every single bit of information in the dna or is it certain bits that are particularly striking like you say there are there's admixture how do the signals look essentially so the data i work with is what we call genotype data so actually if you look at the dna from a, a set of different individuals what you'll find is actually they're virtually identical across the whole genome but there are these points where there are differences, and we call these SNPs. So SNP, S-N-P, stands for single nucleotide polymorphism. But essentially it boils down to, to being a change, which is perhaps um, population-specific. So those are the, the regions that population geneticists are particularly interested in because um, it avoids having to study the entire genome, which is a huge amount of data and can increase sort of your time when you're trying to make any inference. So I look at that data and that generally comes from either blood samples or saliva samples from individuals um, which you then extract the DNA um, and then look at the genotypes and so I'm interested in characterizing these regions of difference so you might find that populations that um, are closer together geographically or have a known history of of mixing then they will tend to share the same difference at those regions whereas if you're looking at populations which are very different so maybe a European compared to an East Asian generally there'll be characteristic differences at those regions of the genome. So what that means is if you have a, a whole um, data set of sequences of DNA, you can start to resolve um, structure, genetic structure, and very commonly that corresponds to where people are from and can be quite um, quite regionally specific. This sort of starts to touch on the idea of haplotypes and haplogroups. So the idea of having a certain region in the genome where you've got a certain collection of single SNPs there. So, for example, they've got an A there and a, a G there, whereas they might not usually. Um, so is that something you're directly working on? Yeah, so it is. So I've, I've I've mentioned there that you can look at these differences and compare them. And there's many techniques of, and ways of doing that, um, which differ in sort of how you apply them and their, their kind of power as, as an inference tool. Um, what I'm interested in doing is instead of just looking at those differences independently, so saying at that region, you're this 
your this um, ATC or G compared to another. I'm actually interested into looking at the correlation between those regions. So generally speaking, um, some regions of the genome will be inherited together as opposed to others. So there is some um, correlation between these regions of difference. And so if you can exploit that correlation and say, okay, if two individuals share the same region as opposed to just that independent SNP, you really increase your power to start to look at these ancestral events. And um, we've shown that quite a few times actually as, as part of my research group that using um, it's called haplotype information. So there's correlation between these regions of difference can really um, improve your ability to, to resolve fine scale structure. So one example of my supervisors was looking at fine scale structure within the British Isles. And you can really start to see even county level differences between um, between groups based purely on their DNA, which wasn't really um, possible if you were looking just at these single differences and considering them as independent. Is that the nature paper which came out? Yeah. So it's the peopling of the British Isles. It's called the Povey Project. So, yeah, I remember this coming out because there's a, there's a few of these papers which come out every now and then where they um, you have a big group of people and you're able to kind of pick out the clusters and colour them by country of origin and find that, oh, look, suddenly we've got the British Isles map appearing on a standard graph just because people from West Europe and East Europe are less similar to each other genetically than people right next door, next door to each other. So that's probably been shown best um, using uh, PCA in Europe, so principal components analysis. In terms of the study you're referring to in, in the British Isles, we you can resolve county level, but if you were sort of to project it, you wouldn't necessarily reconstruct a map of the British Isles. They took samples from across the British Isles and started to look at these um, differences between different groupings based on their DNA. Um, and one thing they then did was looking at how can you cluster these differences. So if I have these um, these genotypes of DNA for people across the British Isles and I say okay I want to divide them into two groups based purely on their DNA you'll find those groups will be Orkney and then the rest of the British Isles and that's likely because people living in Orkney have been very isolated and also there's a, a legacy of Norwegian admixture in Orkney so coming across from sort of Scandinavia. I think it used to be I think it used to be part of Norway for about certain thousands of years yeah, yeah, yeah. so you can imagine that's like quite a strong genetic signature this this link um and then you can imagine doing that again as you move through different clusters and so when you do that i think um generally well certainly you can resolve um north and south wales um and then the really interesting thing is you can resolve um devon and cornwall and that's it, it the dna cluster is virtually identical to the county border which corresponds to the river there but it oh, also like makes that. it very yeah, easy like to, to pick out those two populations and then the other interesting thing is you can keep going down through these levels and you do start to resolve these different populations sort of coming up as being more different from each other. But actually the whole of the sort of south of England, southeast of England, stays very genetically homogeneous. And so actually you have this comparatively larger geographic space, but people look genetically very similar to each other. And there's a, you know, a couple of reasons why that could be the case. And certainly in this work, it seems to suggest that Anglo-Saxon invasions had happened that um, had affected people in the southeast fairly uniformly but this this is an example of, of something which i just find awesome the fact that you can look at the current spread of genetics and you can start inferring uh, was there a certain kind of you know uh, viking raiding here or something that we didn't really know about because we're seeing those signatures in the dna so moving away from the british isles i understand you've done a similar kind of look uh, some kind of um, observation in ethiopia and looking at that so can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so um, this was some work I did. It was originally part of a master's project looking at 
um, sort of genetic structure in Ethiopian populations. So a big sort of broad scale study of Ethiopia. Um, so I started doing that. And as I was working on the samples, kind of an interesting story came up um, specifically about two groups within the data set. So this was the Ari, who are a group found in southwest Ethiopia. And um, very commonly in Ethiopia, you find that groups are um, unnamed or characterized based on occupation. So in the Ari, I had two, two sets of DNA samples, one from the blacksmiths who have a blacksmithing trade and the other from the cultivators who are sort of the agriculturists in the region. And um, a bit of research into sort of the anthropology and the history of these groups um, brought up a few theories about, about how these groups have evolved. So one th important thing to note is that the blacksmiths um, are very socially marginalised. So that means they really don't interact with other groups. Um, they're seen as being the, the inferior group and they live on the, the outskirts of the kind of the Ari community of the settlement and there's no real interaction, so there's no intermarriage. Generally the other Ari groups won't um, enter their houses or, or kind of interact with them in a meaningful way. And there's also some quite interesting taboos. Um, for example, the blacksmiths are believed to turn into hyenas at night. And if you interact with them, you then have to go through purification rituals. So you can see that there's actually a really strong evidence of marginalization, at least from the anthropological literature. And so I was interested in kind of saying, okay, you know, these groups are living in the same community. How, how can that be the case, you know? And it turns out if you look at the DNA, you see what you might expect in that the blacksmiths look very, very different from the cultivators. And what that tells us is that really they haven't mixed a lot with the other members of the Ari community. They've tended to, to marry and mix with people of the same occupation. And that creates a really strong signature in the DNA. Um, but one thing I wanted to do was say, okay, this still seems strange, they're still called the Ari. And there's a few um, legends about where they come from. So one idea okay. is that perhaps the blacksmiths um, were a remnant population in the region. So perhaps they were this original group in Ethiopia before the time of agriculturists. And then other Ethiopian groups have, um, have mixed sort of more or less over time to create the situation we see today. And the other kind of idea is that actually these Ari groups, um, the blacksmiths and the cultivators were ancestrally the same. And then when the blacksmiths adopted this trade of, of blacksmithing, um, which had a lot of kind of um, uh, mythology associated with it because they're working with fire and things, perhaps that's when this division happened. And it turns out that if you test this genetically, yes, you see that the blacksmiths look very different, but if you can remove this level where they're just mixing with people from their own group, um, and we did this using some, some new techniques, um, you find that actually ancestrally the cultivators and blacksmiths look virtually identical to one another. And so um, this was quite a, a cool find for us um, to see, but it was also quite an important contribution to the field because generally speaking, the, um, the kind of the simplest ways of looking at DNA between different groups is, is in a clustering based way. So saying, how would you group these individuals? And you can imagine if you did this with the blacksmiths and the cultivators, you would immediately separate the two groups. The blacksmiths have just mixed amongst themselves for a period of time. They look very different. So it shows that you have to be very careful about you, how you make inference and how you interpret these things. Because this signal was actually masking the, the true ancestral story of these two groups. So it's an interesting story, but we're also hoping it makes quite a big contribution to the field in terms of... Um, being cautious and interpreting things in, in the correct way. So like you say, these clustering methods tend to go out of their way to find differences. You, like you say, if, with the ag mixture, for example, you'll say, I'm looking to, to separate this into two groups, do it for me. But I wonder if there's, it's coming away from kind of the data side, I wonder if there's a kind of social 
social rev- I don't know. It sounds a bit a bit much, but it's like a social revelation which can come from looking at the data and basically saying to these these two groups, "You've come from the same place. You're more likely than you think." And and yeah, I don't know. I, I yeah. kind of feel a bit bad about these guys where they 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 are not allowed into people's houses and this kind of thing. Yeah, I totally agree. So there is um, DNA can really help in that sense. In that, okay, you guys um, maybe aren't as different as you think, and actually we've um, our, our our publication is is an open access journal. So one of the things we want to happen is for people to to read it and to to realise that this is the situation. And really using genetics, you're in a unique position to be able to do that. However, there's a lot of reasons why these social factors are in place, and actually sort of a Western scientist coming and saying that that maybe your ancestry the same has no impact i mean we now know with you know very strong evidence that we were all once african that doesn't stop racial stereotyping so there's a lot of issues that obviously come into play but it's one of the things that i I like about my phd in that i get to work with anthropologists i get to read up on the literature and history of different populations so i can start to at least ask these questions and and test them in a a more robust way so the black swiss have been socially conditioned to be in this uh, in this position in a similar way to the caste system in india yeah, I, I'd say it's it's fairly similar. Like the term caste generally isn't spoken in Ethiopia. Like it's not really the the, the correct term to use. But the the idea is fairly analogous in that you have groups that are assigned in some way based on occupation or some kind of hierarchy, and then there's a some kind of um, social barriers to mixing that that goes on. And this is you know obviously very prevalent in the Indian caste system. And we have done some work looking at, at caste in India as well, where we have DNA from. Uh, populations from different castes and you can start to to tease apart these hypotheses as well um probably worth highlighting the fact that the the idea of there being different races in uh in the human species is more of a kind of psychological one than a genetic one i suppose there isn't these these clear divides between people yeah it's a difficult concept i mean genetically we're we're hugely similar like there's very strong evidence that we come from this bottleneck out of africa and actually if you compare us as as homo sapiens to other species other primate species we're very genetically similar and sometimes this this notion of like racial differences is really quite meaningless if you cluster groups based on their dna you might um you might find that you really can't resolve the differences that people ascribe to different racial groups and instead it's based on something um you know far more um you know, a barrier to mixing, which is something like basically geography. Geography is a huge has a huge impact on how you look genetically. I was wondering whether or not we could kind of zoom out and talk about the, uh, the species level. Uh, could you comment on interbreeding um, between um, Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, for instance? Hmm. Essentially, we know that when humans left Africa, they came out of Africa. They met other ancient humans when they did that. So we know about Neanderthals, for example, and also there's another. Uh, relatively newly um, categorised group of humans called the Denisovans. So they weren't alone, so they met these humans. And it was quite a big question um, for a long time as to whether any intermixing occurred. And we've we've just started to realise that actually this intermixing did occur and it was far more prevalent than we previously thought. And so everyone has um, a Neanderthal component outside of Africa and then a Denisovan component um, in regions of East Asia and into Papua New Guinea. So we have mixed with these um, archaic humans. I had hoped at this stage that... Because I, I had a, a 23 and Me thing done at Christmas. Okay. And I was hoping this would be the opportunity for me to say, uh, you know, I've, I'm, I'm X percent uh, whatever. 
Uh, they haven't analysed it yet, though. That's a shame. So, <laughs> so I haven't got that. What is the turnaround for 23 and Me? It's supposed to be about a couple of months. So. But I oh, think okay. they get a Christmas rush. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. possibly. Uh, <laughs> Christmas is the time to have your, have your genome typed. Um, but I think that raises another important point, really, in that, that there's people are phenomenally interested in the kind of work I and my colleagues do. It's essentially saying, you know, you know how, how interested people are in reconstructing their family tree and understanding where they come from. And so the fact that DNA gives you this power to, to look at different groups um, and kind of resolve more about your own history um, means that it's, you know, it's an area of really great public interest. But it also means we have to be very careful about how we present results. And um, quite a few genetic ancestry companies can, can manipulate results in some way. So they will often uh, make statements, for example, you descend from a Viking or from a specific person. And from my work as a scientist, I really know that that's, that's not something you can say, but of course it sells. So you are in this quite difficult position where you have this hugely interesting topic. Everyone I, I talk to about my work is interested in it. But it also leaves you quite vulnerable. You have to be very careful about saying things in the correct way. way. And even talking to you guys, I'm trying to be very careful that to say things in a way that can be understood and not misrepresented because um, it's a topic that is, is really vulnerable to that, actually. Do you think it's a case of us, uh, so, um, kind of the general understanding of this kind of field, over- overestimating how much we can know about an individual and underestimating what we can know about a population in that we think you can say, oh, look at my genome, I've come from X, Y, I'm, I'm X percent, you know, Italian or something, um, when in reality we don't really find that. Instead we find the more like this this vague group here and that vague group there seem to have had something happen to it. So it's sort of kind of topsy-turvy. And it probably makes sense as well, because, I mean, if you want to have your own genome looked at, you're probably not particularly interested where in a vague cluster you sit. You want to have a kind of an interesting story behind it. I mean, it's far more exciting and marketable to say that I'm, um, I've am i had my DNA checked, I didn't know, and I'm 23% Italian. But what you're actually saying is using the methods we currently have available and my data set of Italians, you look most like a population that is ancestrally, genetically most similar to Italians today, um, in a robust sense. Which isn't particularly <laughs> snappy. No. <laughs> That's probably a soundbite worth us having, the idea that when you have one of these these uh, tests and they say you're X percentage country, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily telling you what you think you're saying. It's basically saying you're most like that population today and therefore you probably have a similar origin to those people am i right in thinking that um it's challenge it's challenging i think is is mm. it's difficult and you're like i said you're very dependent on the data set it might be that you look genetically most similar to i don't know someone from Luxembourg, like a population from luxembourg ancestrally but actually we don't have any good representatives of that population or we don't have any luxembourg people yeah, in sure. our data yeah. set um so you're hugely constrained. One advantage of genetic ancestry companies like 23andMe is that the volume of people who are, are looking to get their DNA tested means that at least we're increasing our samples all the time. And 23andMe mm. actually, you know, they produce their own research as well. So at least they're, they're sort of using these, these this data. Yeah, they had a recent they had a recent paper out looking at this. Okay, so this one surprised me. It was looking at the genetic factors associated with being a morning person or an yeah. evening person, which just sounds ridiculous to me. But their sample size was uh, 89,000 people, I think, which is the dream yeah. to me. Uh, <laughs> and they had some really strong signals as, you know, these genes here are associated with people who wake up early in the morning 
these are more associated with people who wake up at night time which just it was the kind of the strength signals which kind of made me think mm, okay maybe this is paper worth reading it turns out they were all to do with vaguely known circadian rhythm things but you're right these these companies aren't just about your individual report mm. you should people should be- definitely tick the put myself in the research box because they do basically work as research institutes yeah. as well yeah exactly. in their spare time um i think yeah there's there's certain things you can test i personally am not sure whether you're a morning person or not <laughs> is that one is one of those scenarios i've not read the paper properly so i you know i can't really comment but um you you have to in in science you have to set out hypotheses that are testable and it that seems a difficult hypothesis to test because it's very subjective at the same time i don't know if the media has totally misrepresented their studies so yeah yes no of course well i, I didn't i didn't read it for any papers i actually read the, the one itself it seemed good okay that's all i'm saying yeah um they, they ticked the boxes which which i know okay um so this is probably more of a, a less of a layperson audience one. But how many have you encountered many issues when you've tried to get access to these kind of data sets? Um, for example, I understand it can be difficult for us, for example, to get malaria data sets out of India sometimes okay. or out of Brazil sometimes because they, they tend to keep those data sets themselves. Do you ever encounter that? Do you ever encounter problems so, getting access to data? I think that I have heard about that being the case in India. I've never actually come across that kind of problem. It's actually, um, it's another advantage of my field in that generally speaking, when you publish a paper in sort of population genetics, you have to make your data publicly available. So sometimes you have to wait for the publication, but generally speaking, there's a huge data set available for researchers and also studies which are about um, perhaps looking for disease traits. Um, they're still really useful to us in terms of looking at history. So we end mm. up having sort of a wealth of information really. For example, the British Isles project we were just talking about, some of that data came from a multiple sclerosis um, study for the European populations. Do you find certain skews towards certain populations? Because I understand that, it, for example, it's very easy to get um, American or European mm. genomes, usually, because that's where these big hospitals are. It can be a lot harder to find something from, you know, the Congo, yeah. for example, yeah. because no one's going over there and sampling that. Do you have that kind of bias? Do you have to account for that in any kind of way? So we do do um, some steps in our sort of algorithms to try and account for differences in sample size. But I think the biggest limitation really is in terms of representation. So actually, um, one area I'm quite interested in is Papua New Guinea. There's some idea that perhaps Mm. there was a first wave of migrations out of Africa and the remnants of those people are found in some of the populations, at least on the way to Papua New Guinea. But up until recently, there really haven't been very many samples from there. Um, perhaps there aren't many hospitals. Perhaps people just aren't collecting the data or aren't interested. Um, and so there, there are gaps. There are huge gaps. And so, I mean, it would be great to have a far more comprehensive um, survey of genetic diversity. And generally speaking, the populations you're most interested in, which are often the isolated populations or more sort of tribal populations, they're the ones that are less likely to, to be involved in studies. Do you know if there's any kind of obvious solution to that is it is it just about getting targeted funding to do those studies in in those kind of ways yeah i think it's about um representing your work in the fairest way possible and trying to encourage people to believe that you'll have their data it'll it'll be anonymized you'll handle it carefully and with respect and you're interested in finding uh, maybe the truth behind stories traditions or origins um, as opposed to doing anything that's kind of mm. unknown or or a bit kind of scary, I guess. 
I imagine that's probably to a degree going to be a bit of a kind of an uphill struggle because I, I know that, for example, so there's there's a trend in um, getting rid of infectious diseases, mm-hmm. for example, um, polio and and stunning as well malaria these days, where the the closer you are to completely eradicating something, the more likely you are to get resistant uh, communities popping up. Okay. Because you're having an issue where a certain disease is, isn't there so much and so people get more suspicious about people coming and doing that okay. oh so people have the luxury of being immune and so they they, yeah. they aren't exposed to for instance polio that often they yeah. don't know the horrors so, they can cause and so they ignore the risks yeah so say you're in an isolated village and a bunch of people pop up and say you've got to have this vaccine um, for this disease which you don't actually haven't been affected by um, you have a big resistance so I'm kind of moving away from the point here there's always going to be an issue with a bunch of strangers appearing in a remote location yeah. and saying, can we have a bit of your blood mm-hmm. or something? The, the obvious solution to that in the West is things like 23andMe, where you're essentially offering that towards people as a, as a service. Yeah. You can't do that in these locations. I mean, one thing which I think is a potential solution or way forward is, for example, on the Ethiopian paper you mentioned, I wasn't involved in the data collection, but when it was collected... Um, people who were in Ethiopia were responsible for the collection. So we worked in close collaboration with people at Addis Ababa University. Um, So they were actually involved in the collection. So they can bridge the gap somewhat. I have quite an interesting story um, on some samples I've been involved with um, coming from the Congo in that um, Mm -hmm. this is actually part of an economic study, but at the same time they took DNA samples. And um, I think there was a, a monetary reward if you gave a sample. So you'd get paid something or you'd be given something. And um, Hmm. so I received the samples and and started to look at the DNA and immediately I found that there were a huge number of duplicate samples. And it turned out that the person, uh, we think anyway, the people working at the collection site had actually just been sampling themselves and paying themselves as opposed to really engaging in the sample collection. (laughs) I suppose the good thing there is you've got a high chance of being able to go back and find them. Yeah. (laughs) So now actually the collaborators have changed their sampling protocols. So they take DNA samples from the people working at the the centres, which um, unfortunately the DNA means, the fact I'm working with DNA means you can't really get away with that one. <laughs> That's a, that, The lesson there is basically don't pave people for something when they can trick it, trick you into into coming yeah. round to your clinic twice. Or maybe just explain to them that you'll, you'll know in the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we will know you're doing this. <laughs> okay, so moving on from these uh, particularly exotic locations, I was wondering mm-hmm. whether you can comment on your work in Ipswich. I know it's got Matt <laughs> particularly excited. <laughs> Yeah, so I believe Matt's from Ipswich, which is part of the excitement. Um, Yeah, so this was actually a project I did a long time ago. So it was really my kind of introduction into the field I'm now working in. Um, And it was my undergraduate project, but it was was quite interesting. So the the idea behind the project was um, I was involved with a team who had found a medieval Ipswich skeleton that had been dug up and they'd been able to extract DNA from it. Um, and this skeleton actually ended up being um, the subject of a documentary shown on BBC Two, which was called History Cold Case. And the idea it was a it was a series with a, you know different documentaries. And the idea was to characterise um, individuals from human remains in using kind of scientific techniques, so bone isotope analysis, craniofacial reconstruction, and and genetics. And so the interesting thing about this individual was that the craniofacial reconstruction and, and analysis showed that this individual looked very African. And so the researchers I worked with were interested in asking the question um, of whether this individual is perhaps one of the first evidences of um, an African individual in medieval England. And so I was involved in working with the DNA sort of at this point. 
Um, so there's a lot of challenges um, involved when you're working with DNA, which is quite old. So here we're talking medieval times. There's plenty of groups who work with DNA older than that, but generally you have to have very um, sophisticated facilities. So there's a couple of issues. One is that the DNA is very degraded, things break down over time, so it's hard to sort of put the sequences back together. And the other big factor is um, it's very common for the DNA to be contaminated. So either by um, kind of fungal DNA um, or bacterial DNA, but also from modern human DNA. So that's one disadvantage in that generally we're humans working on these ancient samples and it's very easy to actually just contaminate it with our own DNA. So I was working with, with this individual and I, I worked with his DNA. So that involved being in an ancient DNA laboratory, completely suited up in a boiler suit, um, covering my mouth, covering my hair making doing every step I could to avoid contaminating the sample and um this documentary in the meantime was was broadcast and showed that they thought that this individual was African um and then I did my my DNA analysis um looking at regions of the genome specific to certain continental regions what we found is that this individual um actually looked like he was West European in origin so it turns out it was just a, a European or a, a likely an English person buried in Ipswich that just happened to have a quite an African looking face. <laughs> which, which is to say that this uh, Daily Mail headline, he was an African who had a strong jaw and a bad back, so what was he doing in Ipswich in the year 1190 is probably yeah. incorrect. Yeah, yeah um, subsequent to the documentary, which is when I did the project, it turned out that, yeah, the, the genetics <laughs> seemed to say otherwise. <laughs> Fantastic. But that's also a really good example of where DNA gives you the power to start to, to find things out, and sometimes methods that we, we would use previously um, are, you know, are slightly less robust or perhaps there's more of a subjective nature to them. And actually, generally speaking, if you, can, if you do things correctly and you're, you're sort of meticulous in how you do the analysis, the DNA can really answer the, these questions. So is your research predominantly um, computational? Or are you also taking um, samples? So I'm just computational. So okay. um, a lot of my colleagues doing PhDs are are really struggling with their data collection and, and really on my first day I downloaded my data and that was me ready to go so I've been very lucky <laughs> but that's also because there's such a huge amount of data available so I don't think that means I've had an easier ride because the volume of data and the, the scale of the questions is is fairly huge. You have your data sooner but you have your analysis later. Yeah I, I think so the, uh... yeah and there's a lot of challenges when you're working with you know these very large data sets as well storage for, for one. I've got um I've got a data set at the moment which is particularly uh hard to move. Okay. Um I've got twenty terabytes mm -hmm. of um uh, alignment files for something like two hundred and fifty individuals. Yeah, so okay. it's no individuals but it's it's heavy for each one. Mm. Um and you're you're right. The biggest issue there is basically just getting it to a place yeah. big enough to hold it yeah. and then be able to analyse it. And obviously you need usually double the space often to do any decent an analysis with it. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been doing some work with some collaborators who, um, hmm. you know, they'll, they'll um, upload some data and say to us, you know, can we do the analysis? And even just transferring that file from their cluster to ours yes. takes a period of time yes. before you've even started working with it, which... I think that's actually one of the key limiting factors in, in my field and really the field of genetics as a whole in that we have a huge amount of data, which is fantastic, but it's almost more than mm. we, we can handle. And I think things like storage and transfer um, techniques need to try and catch up somewhat um, with the, the amount of data that's being generated. There, there are projects out there which are kind of trying to get around to it. I mean, we're currently working with a with a, with a an inter-university 
consortium sort of thing, which is essentially just getting a big open data set, a data center for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I, I was looking around their, their kind of stats for it, and it had uh, like when I was looking at the total storage they had, I had to go to that chart of what is the word for data this big. Oh wow! It turns out <laughs> I think it was an exabyte or something, which I'd never heard of. Um, yeah, but it's going to start getting to the point where because they have they have reserved kind of titles for these. It's going to get to the point where they start going down the Greek alphabet. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, so it won't be long until we have like I don't know like kappa bytes or or, yeah. or whatever whatever the the bigger ones are. Yeah, my data sets um, aren't quite that big, at least. Though I mean, more data is no. always good. <laughs> but no one's. Yeah. <laughs> Did you say you've done um, work on other individual genetic analysis? Uh, yeah, so so some so there's a project that I'm working on at the moment with collaborators in in Mainz in Germany, um, mm. and it's a, sort of a quite big consortium between archaeologists, anthropologists, geneticists, um, and they're really looking at how can we reconstruct the movement of people at the time of the Neolithic, so the time when farming really became the the predominant um, mode of subsistence in um, in Europe. And so uh, as part of that project, I've been involved in, in analysing um, two ancient genomes from Anatolia, so kind of Turkey region, and three um, ancient genomes from, from Greece. And really, in, in my field at least, ancient DNA is a fantastic way forward because now we have individuals who um, give you a kind of a genetic um, point in time so you can start to make a timestamp. Hmm. And particularly with these samples, they're from different time points. So you can start to say, how does the ancestry of people in that region change over time. There's some huge disclaimers because you generally speaking are working with single individuals and we know from working in modern populations that a single individual from Britain can look very different from everyone else in Britain or vice versa. So you have to be careful, but really we're in a position now where the, the techniques to get extract this DNA, to work with it and have it at high enough quality for sort of the most sophisticated techniques is, is really, um, you know, it's starting to happen and it's really allowing us to start to answer questions of these kinds um but it it is difficult because you're working with single individuals but in terms of my field i think ancient dna really is the way forward the more samples we have the better and it'd be fantastic if we get to the point where we're working with ancient populations as opposed to ancient individuals but then Mm, you're very reliant on you know finding the samples and being able to work with them and that's one limitation, for example, studying African populations is that generally speaking in Africa, the climate really isn't condu- conducive to DNA preservation. So any human rem- remains, the DNA is generally too degraded to work with. There are some exceptions, but generally speaking. So you, you keep saying uh, the main issue with ancient DNA is, is the fact that you just don't have the whole um, genome there. Do you have a kind of rough idea of the kind of coverage you usually get, how much of the genome you usually cover and yeah. how deep? So sometimes it can be, it is very sample dependent. So there's Mm. some genomes that I've worked with where the coverage is almost the same as you would have in a modern population. And that's fantastic. Generally, the older the samples, the worse it is. So you can be looking at sort of like one or two times coverage or generally a a lot lower than that. So that's where analysis of um, the kind of uniparental systems and mitochondrial DNA and Y chromosome DNA becomes useful because um, generally mitochondrial DNA at least is at present at sort of a higher copy number so you have more information mm. than you do if you're looking at the um, autosomal part of the genome and I suppose that kind of adds another level of caution you suppose so you, you say that oh, you'll often have only one individual mm. sample uh, one individual sampled but if you've also got low coverage you've only got perhaps one indicator of a certain region 
exactly. um, so you've got a higher chance of of single mutations there being incorrect because yeah. you don't you don't know necessarily the whole picture mm-hmm. and of course there's a huge risk of contamination as well so it's quite easy to to find that you you happen to look like the sample you're analyzing if, if you're in an nature dna mm. field but actually in this this project on ipswich it was one of the things i was working on and, and the supervisor it was uh, ian barnes at the time he said to me you know it's actually quite mm. good that you're you're a woman working on what we think is a male skeleton because at least your first your first point of check um you can tell if the, if the sex is right then at least you've, yeah. you've got that bit right <laughs> so you you've done some psychom stuff as well and, and am i right in thinking yep. that was kind of your original path but then you went back into science yeah so generally speaking people do a phd and mm. then go into psychom but i kind of did it the other way around which is really that i i love science i'm quite a creative person and i wanted to be involved in engaging okay. people with science and so i did the masters and then kind of at this i enjoyed it but at the same time i was kind of like oh i kind of haven't really stopped this bug thing that I have about human history um, and so I ended up sort of applying for a PhD and applying for other kind of positions in SciComm, got the PhD and, and actually having a PhD I think is really helpful if you want to be in SciComm I'm not, I mean currently mm. I think I'll stay in research but um, it was a fantastic thing to do because it's really, it's a great way of looking at, you, you start to ask questions about how the public perceives science, how science is represented, the history of science, like what's an appropriate scientific technique to be using, what it, what is the science hmm. me- scientific method. So you start to ask these kind of questions, and I really wouldn't have thought about them unless I'd done that master's. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think about it a lot, and particularly in my field now, the representation of your work is very important, and it's very very easy to easy to misrepresent it in terms of you know headlines or or even just saying something wrong and being picked up on it you know you have to be very careful so i think it's really really helped me and this idea of being quite um i don't know the science scientific method being Mm. quite dogmatic so you you seek to kind of constantly Mm. disprove Mm. yourself and certainly doing a phd that that you know i'm trying to use that method because it's 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 not right to accept your first result because it fits your ideology (laughs) basically which it's a learning curve, I think, for PhD students because you also want do to do think, well. Do you think that people see too much of a, a kind of um, separation between you either do research or you do engagement, and the idea that in reality you can do both at the same time? You can you can still be open and communicate your yeah. work in a successful way while still working in the lab the rest of the time. Do you wonder if that's the kind of path you've now kind of found yourself on instead of a kind of purely outside of them? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I would. I would mm. like to do more. The the kind of the nature of research is it's hugely demanding, and quite often you're working in yeah. sort of tight deadlines. And I think in kind of work in public engagement really doesn't get the merit okay. that it should. I think it's phenomenally important. At the end of the day, most of us are funded by taxpayers' money, so we should make an effort to explain to the the taxpayers mm. what what we're doing with it. And if we do that in a way which is in, I mean, the majority of scientific papers are totally inaccess- inaccessible to the lay person. And that's that's really not acceptable. So I think it is hugely important. And I think there's there's a lot of movement now. You know, there's a lot of people blogging about science. There's a lot of people, um, you know, there's obviously scientific programs, podcasts such as this, which are trying to bridge that gap somewhat. And even um, I've got sort of a, a sort of colleague of mine who's started writing a paper, and he's been asking for feedback off Twitter. And so the paper is actually taking form from people kind of putting in their their own opinions and and sharing sharing the paper around. At the end of the day, you know it's a very competitive field but you can imagine that if people actually put their brains together um and that might include the public as well you can you can make far more progress and that that's what it's meant to be all you, about you mentioned a kind of point we should probably um address which is the kind of 
what's the point of the science? Okay, so like you say, you're taxpayer funded. Say yeah. I was a particularly grumpy uh, Daily Mail reader who was annoyed that you've disproved his uh, yeah. the, the article he just read. Uh, <laughs> what what would you say to someone who was basically saying, okay, it's interesting, but um, what's the point of your research? What's your go-to? Yeah. So I've had this question sometimes as well, and it's one I ask myself as well, because generally speaking in science, the bulk of the funding is to do with solving mm. medical problems. So I kind of have two two different answers. One, it's kind of based on the person who's asking the question. Fairly commonly, people are satisfied with you saying, actually, I'm just curious. We're all curious about where we come from, and knowing where we come from can really inform our ideas today about who we are and how we interact as a society. And, and a lot of people think that's a great argument, and I, I personally think that's a strong argument. But the other argument is actually understanding population structure, so how people fit together, what are these kind of novel regions of difference, and how are people different genetically. That can really inform medical studies, treatment, um, and prevention as well. So it has, it has you know, two sides to it. But I think, um, for me personally, I think we should be allowed to be curious about where we come from, and it doesn't necessarily have to have... Um, an immediate medical say impact but actually socially it can it can have a huge impact we've been talking about stories to do with where people come from and we can inform and change ideas um, particularly in society where often you know there's a lot of division um, genetics can really answer these questions yeah I find that a lot in cell biology a lot of people when they write down for uh, grant applications they always have to say that it's somehow uh, related to uh, cancer yeah. studies drug resistance is the one that I bump into a lot yeah, and they just they just don't they're just not connected at all but they have to get that little word in that, that C word mm. and to be quite honest a lot of medical research a lot of medical research doesn't have an immediate um, thing a lot of medical research ends up going nowhere um, but it's there's this kind of idea of I mean the more you know about the topic in general you, you don't know what's going to pop out of it until you've done it and these kind of techniques apply exactly doesn't matter what the disease or what the the human ancestry is it's there's similar techniques and, and if you're using the techniques you're you're making the techniques better and actually i think um sort of science can inform science as well so i'm part of a doctoral training program where i'm a, a cohort of a number of phd students all doing very mm. different project different projects and one of the things they encourage you to do is to go to presentations of each other's work and the amount of times someone will present something which seems completely irrelevant to what I'm doing, and actually I'd be like, okay, that make, that makes sense. I think actually I could use that. Like that that might be a useful analytical tool, or even just a way of phrasing things or anything. Like I, I like the idea that um, science informs science as opposed to it being just about advancing medical knowledge. It should be kind of this. I like to think that it's this like global quest towards the truth. Though perhaps that's really. Um, ideology. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of The Mendel Switches, a production of PhDers from the London area. Uh, remember you can follow us on uh, Twitter and listen to our podcast on SoundCloud and stream through iTunes. And if you'd like to have some more information or background, uh, please see our Mendel Switches WordPress. We're going to try and update that more and more, ideally more than we ever did before. And uh, you can check that out for expanded uh, show notes, uh, etc. Thank you.